Thank you so much. Pardon? I'm on. Yeah. Okay. I'm on. Go ahead and get up there. Okay. Set that one over there. Well, I just had one of them last-minute thoughts. I wanted to go look at something there. No, 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 no. Yeah. Okay. Let me fix that. I don't know if I'll get there to it or not, but uh, boy, these last second things, okay, pretty good. All right. Oh, and I forgot about this. I don't know if you've noticed it. There, I just keep forgetting to bring it, but there, I brought a book in so I'd remember. There's a little box of books out there. I don't know who brought them in. Somebody brought some books in out there, and if you'd like, I guess they're here to take. So, anybody want to confess this morning? They were just sitting out there. Out. Oh, really? Huh. Well, interesting. Well, I found one in there, and I took it home. So, And, I, and then I saw this one this morning, and I, I don't know if I'll look at that or not. This one's called Search the Scriptures. A physician examines medicine in the Bible. I don't know. I may look at that. Twenty apiece. <laughs> Little fundraiser there for, for the church treasure. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we went to the, I sent an email out telling you about a guy named Jason Perry. Does anybody know Jason or do you remember him? Jason's uh, out of, uh, he, he went to Tracy's Daniels Church, Faith Baptist. And then he raised his support to go to Mexico as a missionary and then got uh, Parkinson's. Just a, I mean, he's young too. He must be. I don't, even, I don't even know if he's 40 yet. He might be. I don't even think he is 40 yet. He has five kids, and they're all, like, young. You know, the oldest might be 10 or 12 at the best, I guess. So anyway, his father passed away. He had, had been ill for quite some time, and so Friday evening I went down for the funeral in Fort Oglethorpe. So we do want to remember to pray for him, and he's... Since he got Parkinson's, he's left Mexico and is working in New Mexico now in Roswell at a church there. And, of course, they'll be traveling back next this, this week or someday. Okay. Um, you ready? Come on, girls. Come on. Just you, Sarah, Tori, come on. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Mom's going to come help me sing a song. And if you'd have heard me singing it this morning, you'd know why I've got to have help up here. I was trying to practice at home. It wasn't very good. Uh, uh, yeah. Harris asked Tori if I needed help, or I asked her, and she she just laughed. It, it was not good. If you would, if you turn to Psalm 18... Psalm 18, this is a scripture song. Now, we did Psalm 25 last week. Today, we're going to do Psalm 18. If I get to it, there we go. And we'll look at uh, two verses. Verse 3 is the first verse. It says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Does anybody know that? Anybody else? You've heard that before? Okay, good. That will get a little help there. Or we'll we'll work it out. Then verse 46 is the other part of it. Verse 46 says, The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. You know that one? (laughs) Okay. Well, this... The sad thing is, I'm still hoarse. I, I don't know if I'll ever get my voice back because of those inhalers I use. Mm. So I only have the range. It's not very good for me either. Okay. Ready? Here we go. I, I will, will call upon, upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. I will call upon the Lord. The Lord 
And blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Is that enough? I think they should sing with us. I think they should sing it. They, I saw some lips moving. I saw a few, but I didn't see Jackie singing. Whoa, way, way to point him out here. Jackie has a good voice. I think Jackie should sing. <laughs> Gary, do you know that? Oh, if we sing it one more time, you'd know it. <laughs> All right, we'll do it one more time. Verse 3. Everybody. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. I will call upon the Lord. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. The Lord liveth. And blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if I do that by myself, you know, I tend to add things in there that's not supposed to be there. (laughs) So, okay. Well, with that in mind, let's turn to Job chapter 27. And this, uh, yep, right before Psalms, Job 27. Um, this little phrase that we sang in the song. In, or in the Psalms, in the, in the song, Psalm 18, we're going to look at again here. In Job chapter 27, and we have to read a few verses here just to get kind of the context and idea of what he's talking about here. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty, who hath vexed my soul, All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. God forbid that I should justify you till I die. I will not remove mine integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Let mine enemy be as the wicked, and he that riseth up against me as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained, when God taketh away his soul? Will God hear his cry when trouble cometh upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? I will teach you by the hand of God that which is with the Almighty I will not conceal. And what I'm wanting to look at here, particularly, is in verse 10. And we're looking at a negative aspect of this phrase, call upon God. And he's talking about the hypocrite here. He's talking about the one who lives apart from the Lord, but then in a time of need, desperation. Then he wants to run and call upon God. Does that sound familiar to our day too? Don't we have a tendency even ourselves sometimes to do that? Um, And really what we're going to be looking at is the idea of calling upon the Lord as being part and parcel of a Christian's life. When he says there in verse um, 8... He says, for what is the hope of the hypocrite? And then, of course, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, there is, he doesn't really have any hope. What is his hope? 
when God taketh away his soul. Now that word taketh away is an interesting word and it's from what I understand the way the lexicons tell me this word is used to describe a tapestry that has been made um, woven together and when you on the loom when you tie the cords you know to the loom and stretch it it's like you have a, 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 a pole or a post there and tie these cords to it, and then when you pull on it, you know, you're able to weave the cords or the threads or whatever to make this tapestry. And when it's all done, then you cut it loose and you take it away. And that's what this take away is having reference to. And, of course, some have read into that or understood this to say when his the tapestry of his life all the interweavings of things that have gone on in his life have come to an end and it's time to be cut away, that is, to die. What hope has the hypocrite? He says, will God hear his cry when trouble cometh upon him in verse 9? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? And of course, the obvious expected answer there is no. He's not going to do that. Maybe he will rush at the last moment when he's in a state of desperation. He may call upon the Lord. Look at um, a few other passages, and believe me, I, I really, I'm going to look at some fast. One, ah, get off of there. Two, three, four pages, and I would say 99% of those are verses, <laughs> but I'm not going to try not to look all of them up. But what I want us to do is look at several passages, and this isn't even all of them. I didn't copy them all down. But I want us to look at several passages of Scripture using this expression, call upon the Lord, or call on the Lord, or calleth, or calling, or calls on the Lord. And bring that to a conclusion then. So, with that in mind, Psalm 14 says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? Just like this one here in with Job, as he's giving a description of the hypocrite, he talks about here the workers of iniquity. In verse 4, Psalm 14, 4 says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. That's a condemnation to those who do not call on the Lord. Now, is he talking about heathen? No. He's talking about those within the community of Israel who oppress those who do call upon the Lord. Look with me back at Job again in verse chapter 12. I'm going to try to do some of these in order, but some of these were have to jump around a little bit because I'm looking here initially at this negative idea or this negative aspect of those who do not do this very thing call on the lord job 12 4 says i am as one mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon god and he answereth him the just upright man is laughed to scorn and the picture you see developing as we've already mentioned is the idea that the one who is the righteous man who is upright who is just, who is living for the Lord, is the one who is laughed at, he is scorned, he is mocked. You remember in Psalm 1. You remember what he says in Psalm 1 there? We don't have this expression call on the Lord there, but we have this whole idea of the righteous man. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And this whole idea that the one who lives righteously 
is the one who will be laughed or mocked. Now, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to look at a lengthy portion of scripture there. Proverbs chapter 1 and beginning with verse 20. Beginning in verse 20, he says, Wisdom cries without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city she utters her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you, because I have called, and you refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. Verse 25 says, But ye have set it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. And of course, here we find the plight of the one who has refused God's wisdom, refused his counsel, refused his word, but then when calamity comes, distress, anguish of heart and soul, and they call upon the Lord, then he says, I'm not going to be there. Not going to be there to provide for you, to answer your request. Verse 29 says, For they that hated knowledge did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would, and of course, the fear of the Lord, you know, is, is a really a kind of a broad expression describing the one who walks in that kind of counsel, in that manner. He walks in the fear of the Lord. He says there in verse uh, at the end of verse, uh, or at the end of, beginning in verse 30, they would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet. From fear of evil. Now that word, and I like that word hearkeneth. You know, you just look at the first four four letters, H-E-A-R, that's what it means. He who hears the or listens to the Lord shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. And so we see the idea then, again, the contrast between the one who does acknowledge the Lord, who does live in fear, who accepts his counsel who bows the knee and accepts him as Lord of their life is the one who God promises to answer their request, answer their call, provide for their needs, give them rest, peace, and a lack of fear regarding their enemies. And so the whole point is calling upon the Lord, even at this point, we see has to do with right now, today. It's everyday living. Calling upon the Lord has to do with how you and I walk with the Lord every day. And this whole, this whole expression, the, the, uh, those that call on the Lord, is a, just another description. It would be another way of saying uh, the New Testament expression, confessing Jesus. It's acknowledging with my life, with who I am. And my relationship to him, that he is my Lord. I want us to look at a couple other, well, several other passages, but we'll try not to, try not to make that too boring or stressful, you know, turning page after page here. So we're just going to walk through Psalms. And I want us to look, you know, there, as you would imagine, if you think about this whole expression here, and you thought about it very much, if you thought about the Psalms, you would realize the psalmist, you know, he's, in all these Psalms, they're really pouring their heart out to the Lord. And they're giving expression to their frustrations, their faith, 
their uh, um, um, oppression they're, they're having from the hypocrite or the wicked and so on. And so you find that expression used a lot in the Psalms about calling upon the Lord. In Psalm 4 and verse 1, he says, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And you see immediately here, as we'll see throughout many of these Psalms, calling upon the Lord was because there was a distress, a need in the person's life. Look over it. Well, we already looked at Psalm 18.3. We sang it. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Now, in, a, in, a, in an expression like that, we have to recognize here, again, that this is dealing with now, time. It's for the present. Deliverance from enemies. And it doesn't mean somebody necessarily coming at him with a sword or a bow or a machine gun or a, a knife. He's talking about those who are the enemies of his soul. Those who are trying to rob him of his faith. This is a general broad characteristic of all of these people. All of these psalm writers, you read the rest of the psalm and you will catch the context of which this distressing situation has put them in and the reason why they're calling on the Lord. Look at uh, Psalm 50, verse 15. Just jump over there a few pages to the right. Psalm 50, verse 15. Verse 14 says, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. A promise that we can call upon the Lord. Look over at 55 and 16. Just a few chapters over. 55 and verse 16. There the psalmist, David says, As for me, I will call upon God. And the Lord shall save me. And again, if you look at the context, he's not talking about out there in the future. Someday God's going to save me. But he's talking about present deliverance right now from the distressing situation that you find yourself in. Look at Psalm. Um, let's go to, ooh, let's see. Psalm 86.5. Psalm 86, and there's a couple of passages or verses here. A well-known verse. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. And then look at verse 7. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. In the day of my trouble. In the day of my distress. Look at Psalm 91. And verse 15. The Lord speaking here. He shall call upon me. And I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. And will deliver him. And honor him with long life will I satisfy him and show unto him my salvation. This is the promise that goes to the upright or righteous living or godly living person who's calling upon the Lord. His promise is he'll hear that prayer and he will bring the, the deliverance, the necessary deliverance. In, in uh, Psalm 99, it says Moses and Aaron and Samuel, his priests, among them that call upon his name. And they called upon the Lord and he answered them. I'll just read a couple more here and you won't have to turn to them. Psalm 105, O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. 
Psalm 116, because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him. Verse 13, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the Lord and so on. Well, and I won't belabor so many more that we could read. Uh, I do want to move ahead to, um, well, actually we're looking back in a sense here to Deuteronomy. And in chapter 4, verse 7, he says there, What nation, and this is, of course, Moses encouraging this new generation of people as they're about to enter into the land of promise. He says, What nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call on him for? Nobody can claim a promise like that, he says, concerning the nation of Israel. Well, concerning us, concerning those who are seeking after the things of the Lord, the same benefit, the same promise. Nobody can claim God as being so near to them as the one who is living in this manner. There are several other instances of those who failed to call on the Lord. I don't want us to look just at a couple. We don't have to turn there for this uh, one I'm going to read here in Isaiah 64. He says, There is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Now notice what he said. He said, there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. The whole idea, again, is a believer. And he's saying the condition in Israel at this time in Isaiah was that there was none that were, was calling on the Lord, that was seeking him, that would grab a hold or embrace the Lord. That was a part of their problem. Their condition. Jeremiah chapter 10, he says, Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. So again, it's not just just the ungodly, but it's the heathen as well. Jeremiah's calling upon the Lord to pour out his wrath, his fury, upon those that call not on thy name. For they have eaten up Jacob... That is, the people of Israel, and devoured him and consumed him and have made his habitation desolate. And you might remember when Jonah was in on the ship, you know, and the thing was rocking and reeling and things just didn't look too good. You remember the captain of the ship came to Jonah and appealed to him to call on your Lord. And so it's to be understood that this expression call on wasn't just uh, an expression that was used of Jehovah, but even the heathen called upon their gods. They made appeal unto them. But of course they couldn't answer because they didn't have ears to hear, eyes to see with, and so forth. And so what happened to uh, Elijah? You remember when he met with them on Mount Carmel? And he said, you know, he was challenged as to his God. And he said, okay, you meet with me. I'm just paraphrase here. You meet with me. We'll see whose God is God and who isn't. And you know how the story went. But he said, you know, you... Make your altar and do your little thing. And he said, and you call on your gods. And of course, nothing happened. And then Elijah called on the God of heaven. And he sent fire down. And that served as a witness. Confirmation. Not only to the believing community, but to those heathen, the unbelieving, the wicked that Elijah had confrontation with. And of course, then you remember right after that, as he was fleeing, he was appealing to the Lord and said, 
Looks like I'm the last one left here, Lord. It's nobody but me. Just you and me, God. And he said, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Those were the ones who were calling on the Lord. The ones that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And so what I'm trying to present to us and paint this picture of is of the character of the righteous man or the just man who Habakkuk says, the just shall live by faith. So we're talking about this: these that were living by faith, who were holding out regarding the promises of God, were those who had this big expression used to characterize them. The ones who called upon the Lord. Now, uh, I'm going to jump ahead again, skip a bunch of... Verses here. Uh, let's see here. Um, let's go to, well, there's, boy, there's a whole bunch more in the Old Testament. We're going to go to the New Testament and look at a few passages there. Go with me and let's just go right to Romans chapter 10 to probably one of the more well-known passages in the New Testament regarding calling upon the Lord. And it's kind of hard to go through a passage like this without just starting at verse 1. So Romans chapter 10 and verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And, of course, one of the keys to understanding this whole passage is to ask yourself, what saved is he talking about here? And he he is talking about Israel, the entire nation. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. That is, epi-knowledge. Not according to full knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They just simply didn't do it. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. All right, look at verse 8. Concerning Christ. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith, which we preach. That is, we looked at this the other night with Brother Mike, uh, this word, word. There's the spoken word, and then there's the logos, the message, the message. Here he's talking about the spoken word, the word of faith, which we preach. That if thou shalt, and here is that message. This is it in verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Then what? For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what is he talking about here? Well, he's not talking about Let's just say what he's not talking about. He's not talking about deliverance from hell as we commonly understand the word hell. He's talking about, and and again, the word here has reference to time. It has to do with right now. It is a promise. It is a promise to all those who believe in the Lord Jesus that if they call upon him, 
then they will experience deliverance. That is, they will be saved. How do you know that? We'll just continue on reading. How then, in verse 14, shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, there you have it. There's the order. Believe first, then call on the Lord. And so what he's using here is this expression is one that is to be a characteristic of the believer's life. You believe, then you practice calling upon the Lord. And to the one who does call upon the Lord, then he can experience the promise of being delivered. He'll be saved or delivered from his enemies or whatever the the trial or temptation or trouble is that he's facing. Now, of course, you realize this is all in the context of the faith. He's not saying, well, if you have heart problems, if you have cancer, you call on the Lord and that's it. You're going to be healed. Don't worry about it. Just call on the Lord. No, the context here, as we've seen throughout all the Old Testament, and as we're going to see here in the New Testament, is characteristic of the life of one who is walking and living by faith, holding the promises of God, seeking the Lord's, uh, the fulfillment, I should say, of the Lord's promise, which is the future inheritance, that on the path of life, when he encounters distress, trial, tribulation, trouble, oppression from his enemies or the wicked that are around him, scorning him, scoffing him. He said, you call on the Lord, that's when you have the promise to be delivered or saved from that situation. Matter of fact, then he goes on to say in verse 14, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You know, it's really, and and of course, then, and how shall they preach except they be sent? So you do the sending of someone who does the preaching. He preaches the word or the message. They hear, they believe it, and then they call upon the Lord. That's the practice. That was to be the characteristic of those who hear the gospel and respond to it. And so in verse 17, you'll see what he says. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, the message of God, the logos of God. In Acts chapter 2... Turn with me back to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. You remember as following upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his burial, and then his resurrection, in chapter 1, he appeared to the disciples, the apostles, and instructed them regarding what they were to do. They were to wait until they received the, the Holy Spirit. And he taught them, concern, it says, concerning the, uh, the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and so on. And then their commission that they were to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and share this message wherever they went. Well, the Holy Spirit came in chapter 2. And, of course, it was a, quite a phenomenon, caused a stir, And so to bring the matter into perspective, Peter begins to preach to the crowd. In verse 14, Peter, it says, Standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. I've got a message for you. Listen to what I'm going to tell you regarding these things that you've just seen and heard. Well, I want us to look over to... Uh, verse 20, or 21 rather. He's quoting from the book of Joel. 
And he says there, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Well, he goes on in his message preaching the things concerning the Messiah and the promise that God had given through David and so on. And if you turn over to uh, verse 36, as he's approaching the conclusion of his message, he says, Therefore, having said these things, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ, or Messiah, anointed. And so the response of the people then was, upon realizing and being convinced of the logic of the message that Peter had just preached, they realized, whoa, we did. We just, we killed our Messiah. They were pricked in their heart, it says, in verse 37. And they said to Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In view of the fact that we realize we've murdered our own Messiah, what should we do? And Peter tells him in verse 38, repent. That was the key. Repent of what you have just done and be baptized. That is, identifying yourself with this one you've killed, the Messiah, in the name of Jesus, the anointed, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. All of these who would do this very thing, would find the promised deliverance by repenting and being baptized and acknowledging the Lord Jesus as Christ. You remember when the Apostle Paul was, he was being charged with all these crimes and he realized that if he didn't get out of there, they were going to kill him. And so he said, I appeal unto Caesar. The word appeal is the same word that we have translated call upon. I call upon Caesar. And that really gives us a very practical, personal illustration of exactly what he's talking about here for a Christian to call upon the Lord. It's to appeal to him for the present needs. That's also why in Hebrews chapter um, uh, 4, this is one I wasn't planning on going to, but it's the same reason why in Hebrews chapter 4, he says um, in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, that verse is Boy, that is really an interesting verse. Because if you just back up to chapter 3 and the previous verses in chapter 4, you'll find out that it's those who were holding out for the promise of entering into the rest that this promise of deliverance and having immediate access to the throne of grace was given to. These are the same people who are the practicers of, if I can say it that way, calling upon the Lord. It was the characteristic of their life. Now, a couple, one or two other things here. I want to go to... Um, ta -da -da -da. I'll just close it. Go all the way back with me now to Genesis. Chapter 4. Oh, well, that's not exactly where I want to go either. Sorry. 
Genesis chapter 25. Let's go there first, I think. If not, at least put your finger there and keep it. In chapter 4, we'll go with chapter 4 first. Verse 26, the last verse of that chapter. Of course, you know the events that have taken place. And uh, Cain had uh, slain his brother Abel, tells us there in verse 25. And God had appointed her another seed, Seth. Verse 26 says, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What I want to suggest to you is that at this point in time, you remember there was very few men on the earth, but God had given the promise concerning a deliverer and it appears to me at least this is the way I understand this is that at that point in time when is when men began to live in light of or in view of the promise that God had given them regarding the seventh day and they began to call upon the Lord if you'll turn over to back now to, to Genesis 25 with the case of Esau. Here is the case given to us of one who did just the opposite. You remember he came in from the field. He was hungry. He was ravished. And, and Esau had made this pot of lentils and so on and soup, lentil soup and uh, in verse 31, Jacob said, uh, sell me this day thy birthright, because he was hungry. <laughs> he, he wanted something bad. You saw that back in, uh, when he came in, in verse 29, Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint, and therefore is his name called Edom. Well, then in verse 32, Esau said, behold... I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Now, I know that most of the time, we go down to verse 34, and we focus on the fact that he despised his birthright. And, of course, they are connected. But what I want us to see here is that in reference to this one who lived, excuse me, and in reference to those or the one who lives his life every day with the inheritance or the birthright in view is characterized by the one who calls upon the Lord. Esau saw his birthright as of no value. When he was at the point when he should have called upon the Lord for his need, he actually despised the inheritance, the birthright, and said, what profit shall this birthright do to me? Or, what good's that to me? I'm about ready to die. If I don't get some food in my stomach, I'm going to die. The birthright means nothing to me. Of course, Jacob was setting him up. We know that. But look at the contrast here between one who valued the birthright, and connived to get it as opposed to the one who only looked at his present circumstance and wanted that need fulfilled and was willing to give it up, the birthright, in order to have his present need fulfilled. And that's exactly what you see happening with Esau. So Jacob made him swear. He says, swear to me this day. And he swore unto him and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Just like that. But you know, we can do the same thing if we're not careful. That we can sell ourselves out to a present need 
and forget to call upon the Lord. And that's a danger that we all face. See, and I'm preaching to me today because I know I face this all the time. The temptations come to give up or to quit. But you keep the promise. You keep the focus of the inheritance. Just like the Lord Jesus, who was who for the joy that was set before him, it says he endured the cross. And if I don't keep my mind and my heart focused on that inheritance and what's out before me, then the things of this life will just, just come in like that. And it'll come in to crush your faith and to crush your soul. So Jacob, he says, there gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. He walked away just like that. Had a meal. A very temporal thing. And yet he gave it up. His whole birthright, his whole future, just for this. That whole word despise means to scorn or ridicule or show some contempt for something. It's exactly what um, what was David's wife's name that despised him? I can't think of it. Um, starts with M. Well, I want to say Milka. That's not right. I know that. Anyway, same words used there. When it says she despised David, when he came back dancing, it says he despised him in her heart. Same thing here. He despised the birthright. You know, it's a, in other words, he just made it a cheap thing. The birthright spoke of all that God had promised here in the book of Genesis up to this point. And men began to call on the name of the Lord following Seth and the birth of his son. And I'm convinced that that was descriptive. After you look at all these other verses that we could have looked at and look at the characterization of the kind of person that the Lord is speaking of and you look at the rest of the passages in the New Testament that talk about those who call on the Lord, it all in every place has reference to those who are calling upon the Lord because they are holding fast to the promise of the inheritance, the hope the resurrection, the glory that's to come. Even the word glory is used, the glory that's yet to come. And so I want to just encourage us that we would be steadfast in that regard, holding to those things that are most precious to us and call on the Lord in our time of need. When distress comes, just don't forget. There's a help immediately at the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this privilege to meet with your people, to practice the very things that we were talking about this morning, to call on the Lord, to be visible representatives of those who believe in you, believe in your promises, and to know that once we leave this place, we do not have the strength and the help and the fellowship of our fellow Christians here, but we go out to face a world that stands solidly against everything that we believe. And so I pray that you'll give us the strength and the grace to do those very things, to call on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.